0: Welcome to the Rocks Back Pages podcast. I'm Barney Hoskins, and I'm here on Planet Zoom with my colleagues Mark Pringle, hi Barney, and Jasper Mirison Bowie. Hello, Barney. Today, we're very honored to welcome Rough Trade founder Jeff Travis into the virtual cupboard. Hi, Jeff. Good morning, everybody. What a treat to have you on our laptop screens. Don't speak too Um, soon. (laughs) 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 Among other things, today we'll be talking a bit about Green Gartside, who releases a new record tomorrow on Guess What? Rough Trade. Yes. (laughs) But, But first, Jeff, can we just get a sense of how you came into music in the first place and how that led eventually to the opening of the first Rough Trade Shop in 1976. Oh, goodness. <laughs> <laughs> well, Don't know. say how long have you got. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you know, if you can... <laughs> well, I, I'm a sort of very
1: typical suburban London boy brought up in Finchley. and um, But the, the, a twist of fate bought a cousin from Canada to come and live with us. And he was called Big Jeff. I was called Jeff, Little Jeff. He was Big Jeff. And his dad was some kind of minor criminal and got himself into trouble with the law. And so he'd been sent away. And my parents, in a remarkable act of charity, took him into our household. And so he lived with us. And the thing is that he brought with him records that he had from America. And so the first records I remember hearing were the things that he had in his possession. And they were... Dwayne Eddy, Freddie Cannon, Every Brothers, Buddy Holly. And I just remember loving these records. And I think I probably just took them from him. He didn't seem that bothered about them. Look how he had them. And I, <laughs> I sort of took them over and I became obsessed with them. And that was really my introduction to rock and roll when I was probably pretty young. And then, you know, that was a great time to be growing up in London. I mean, you know, at school nights, we, you know, I remember lying in bed with my, with the classic transistor radio, parents would tell you to turn the lights out and then as soon as they'd gone you'd get out your transistor radio and listen to it under the bed covers Then you'd be listening to John Peel on Radio London Perfume Garden Show at midnight. Yes. Ships. And, yes. and it was very frustrating because the signal would sort of fade in and out the whole time and I always tell this story which maybe you haven't heard that Kevin Shields said that he used to do that as well. And he said the sound of Soon or My Bloody Valentine 12 inch, one of their best ever tracks, had yeah. a kind of fade in, fade out quality to it. And he says that was an attempt to copy that feeling of listening to the, the Pirates when there was sign- the, where a, great, where I a signal. In. Yeah, story. it's a great little story, isn't it? <laughs> but I remember, so that was my introduction, of course, and we had a Ready, Steady, Go, which was really exciting. Kathy McGowan, Dusty Springfield, you know, to see Marvin Gaye and Smokey Robinson and, you know, Martha and the Vandellas and everybody, that was my education. And being in London, uh, I went to school at the Angel Islington. so that was great. I was actually in the heart of the city in a way. So after school, would go to the marquee with my briefcase and get in the queue and go and see the Who. so... <laughs> <Wow>. <laughs> not bad? Good, good time to be growing up in London. Not bad. <laughs> yeah, Absolutely. exactly.
0: And I know that you went to America at a certain point, didn't you? You were, you were, you were a teacher, and yes. I think you, I was, that was yeah. the happiest experience. No. And I think that then prompted you to go to America. Have I got that the right no, way? That's around? right. I mean, I went to
1: college, and that was good. And obviously, that was a huge musical time for me, buying records and playing records and really I spent all my money on records and books really. But yeah, I went, I didn't know what to do after university. I had no idea really. And so I went to teach training college sort of on a whim. And I did that for a little bit, taught drama and English. I enjoyed that, but I enjoyed teaching the kids, but I hated all the other teachers. And they, hate, they hated me <laughs> because I had this sort of afro. and You had a big afro. I did. And so when I went in the staff yeah. room, I was like, they were, honestly, they were very disapproving of me. And also the way they talked about the kids really upset me. So anyway, I was doing that classic thing where I was, you know, I'd read The Dice Man, Luke Reinhardt, that really stupid book. and you know, was, My son's
0: reading that at the it's moment. A terrible book, funny? honestly.
1: I was waiting at the bus stop. <laughs> and I said, if the bus doesn't come in the next five minutes, I'm going to quit this job. And I'm going to go to America, and the bus didn't arrive, and I quit the job. And the next day, I was on a plane to Montreal to see an old girlfriend. And I went, wow, I, the next yeah, day. it was good. And so I went to Montreal, then I went to Toronto and visited some old friends there. Got a job working in a health food store and spent all my money buying records there. And then I met a girl in Toronto called Penny, and we decided to, to have an adventure. We went to Chicago together, and then we hitchhiked from Chicago all the way out to San Francisco, because I wanted to visit City Lights Bookshop. And we we hitchhiked across America, and that was really good fun. Everyone that picked us up was, the first thing they said was, you're crazy, you're going to get yourselves murdered. But we managed to get (laughs) across America without being murdered.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Good (laughs) job. Obviously, we'd be sitting here today. I know. But rough trade wouldn't have existed. actually a sale. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Who knows what wouldn't have happened? So I'm really glad you weren't murdered, Jeff.
1: And the beauty of that trip was, along the way, out of, we didn't really go along the main highways. We kind of took the B roads. So we really saw an old America. But we'd stop in the junk shops and buy, and I'd buy records because I was pretty addicted at that point to buying records. But also they were very cheap, like 25 cents. And I'd be picking up Tim Buckley albums and, you know, early Mother's invention records and all kinds of things. So by the time I got to San Francisco, I had a whole pile of records. And they were leaning against the wall of this pretty seedy apartment in Ashbury, where I was living. And this guy from Newcastle that was there called Ken Davidson, who was impressive to me because he actually knew Hilton Valentine, and Hilton Valentine <laughs> was an actual musician who played guitar in, animal, in you know Eric and the Animals first group. That's right. That's pretty impressive. Yeah. <laughs> this so is my you connection knew to Someone well. who knew an actual musician. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. So yeah. And he yeah. said, "What are you going to do with these records?" And I said, "Really, I have no idea." And he said, "Why don't you ship them back to London and start a record shop?" And that was a kind of eureka moment
0: where I thought, "You know what? That's a pretty good idea." And that's what I did. That is fantastic. And so, what, so what's the time gap between that and opening the shop? Very. London, I mean,
1: very short because I mean that was ninety. That was probably the early part of nineteen seventy-six. Got back to London. And we drove around a bit with some friends from college, John Kemp and a woman called Joe Slee. And we drove around trying to find the premises. And we found a place in Dublin Hill Road, which is sort of further out from Kensal Rise, sort of towards Wembley, sort of strange hinterland of suburban northeast London. And we started renting a shop there and sanding down the walls. And then one day we contacted someone from Polydor rep, to come around. So we thought we'd better buy some records if we're going to be a record shop. And so this guy came around from Polydor and he said, what are you doing here? And we said, well, we're going to open a record shop. And he said, well, there's no passing trade here. And we said to him, what's what's passing trade?
2: (laughs) (laughs) And he said, actual real
1: real people who might be interested in coming into the shop to buy records. And we said, you know what? He's got a point, you know, (laughs) like he was a bit of a wasteland. (laughs) So we thought that's a bad idea. We'll take his advice. We packed that in and drove around the car again until we saw that wagon wheel above 202 Kensington Park Road. And we fell in love with that. And that seemed to be the site for us. And then we found out it had been a head shop and the kind of place that Jimmy mm-hmm. Hendrix would go to buy his rolling papers. So the vibes were perfect. It was perfect. perfect. And it was calling <laughs> calling out <laughs> to us from the road. And oh, so we, we rented that. And that was on a pretty desolate street. And obviously it wasn't on Portobello, which rents we couldn't no. afford. But it was on Ken Park Road. There was a synagogue. There was a Polish woman there in Delhi. Years before there were any Polish delis. There was a sort of mad woman next door called Doris who had a sweet shop, And that was it, really. And it was a garage on the corner, and it was a street where really nobody walked down at all. But mm. we could afford it, and that's when we opened it, really.
0: We're actually featuring three pieces about you and Rough Trade on the homepage this, this week. And the first, conveniently, is a story that Vivian Goldman wrote in Sounds in January 77, and she obviously stops by the shop. I'm sure he'd been in there many times already. And she starts off, she says, Jeff is tall and lanky with a fuzzy afro. You still have the afro, <laughs> that's the good news. A fuzzy afro of light brown hair and a grin guaranteed to melt the snow cap at the top of Mount Everest. And it's just a, <laughs> it's a nice piece about the store and how cool it is and really puts it into context and talks about you know, fanzines that you're selling there. And oh I mean I wish I, I don't think I ever went in there as early as that. I wish I had, but it just captures the whole mood and, and, and vibe of the store. It must have been a great and exciting time, Jeff. It was good fun, definitely. Yeah. Just playing music really loud all day. That was Nirvana as far as we're concerned. <laughs> it still
2: is, really. <laughs>
0: <Yeah>. Yes. Exactly. <laughs> That's just that whole principle of like um getting paid for enjoying yeah, yourself. Exactly. I, I admire that. And I I mean I assume that through your long and august career, it hasn't all been about enjoying yourself. I'm sure there've been stressful moments and difficult periods in the story of rough trade and other you know other enterprises that you've been involved with but would you say that you've been able to make a living <laughs> gotten paid for enjoying yourself yeah it's pretty much
1: it's pretty yeah it's pretty nice to be able to listen to music all day especially in sort of lockdown times and sort of kid yourself that you're actually doing
0: something worthwhile <laughs> <laughs> you must have gone into being a sort of denizen of that part of I, London. Well, I,
3: I wasn't really at that time. Are oh, you? Were
0: living I, in East London? Yeah, weren't you?
3: I, I'd moved out east. I'd go in. A, the other thing is, I, I mean, I'd go to see people I know playing at Atlam Hall, which is mm. sort of not a million miles away, and sort of associated. In fact, when we talk later about the Green interview, he talks about their first gig playing with my friend Nick Cash's band, Prague Vec, at the Acton Hall. I may have been there. I can't remember, mm. but but uh, but. So that was that was my association, but I'd moved out east pretty much by then, so
4: it's funny because just to jump in, my first it, this will horrify all of you, I'm sure, but in my mind, because it was the first rough trade that I went to, rough trade East is the rough trade that's that horrified i I know We are horrified' say <laughs> of that, <course>. just, but... <laughs> but it's funny it's funny because that was probably the first sort of vinyl record shop that I went to, kind of travelling up from Oxford to go you know to thrift shops. In East London and also Rough Trade was the primary destination. It's just funny that the transition has gone from west to east mm, in that in mm, that way.
0: I mean, I think for any listener who doesn't know, and I'm assuming most of you out there listening to this will know exactly how seminal and important Rough Trade has been. You know, it it, it just the importance can't really be overstated, both in terms of the stores. And the label. I mean, I'm looking, preparing for this, Jeff, and just looking down the list of acts that you have signed to Rough Trade is just sort of gobsmacking, really. I mean, I'm I'm not just saying that to flatter you. I do think (laughs) your kind of your strike rate is 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 just phenomenal. There's, There's obviously there are there are a few kind of obscure acts that sort of went went by the wayside, but. It's like a roll call of sort of, you know, indie pop, indie rock, and I mean, just almost unerringly sort of good selections, and at least interesting, even if you don't love some of them. Mo- I mean, early Scritti, for example, which we're we'll talking about in a minute, <laughs> isn't for everybody, but it's still fascinating. I wanted to just ask you briefly what, when you decided to form the label, Jeff, I mean, were there, Specific inspirations, and I'm thinking about Mark Zermati's Sky Dog, for example. You, you, you will be aware that he we've just that he just died. I yeah, think absolutely. Had you heard yeah, that? Absolutely. And I, I mean, not that I would imagine Sky Dog as being a kind of clear precursor to Rough Trade, but were labels like that? Did they play any part in your in your decision or your your sort of aesthetics? Well, it was a strange happenstance. The shop came first,
1: really. There wasn't really a master plan to turn that into a label. But, I mean, Virgin Records was literally 500 yards up the road in Vernon's Yard, up Portobello Road. So we would go there to buy records from them. Stiff Records was really literally two miles away in Exxon Street. And we would go there to see Jake and Dave and Paul Conroy. And they would come in the shop and sell us records. Ted Carroll and Roger Armstrong, their shop in Camden Town was a fantastic shop. And... And yes. so, I mean, Ted started off in Goldbourne Road, as you know, where we've ended up, which is interesting in in a store, there selling records. I mean, the inspiration was more that we wanted to have a distribution network because we wanted to be in control of what went into that. We didn't want to have anyone else deciding for us what cultural artifacts we could consume. We wanted to be the arbiters of that. So that came first really. Skydog was important because they had imported great records like the Flyn Groovers 10 Inch and Diggy Pop bootleg single, I Got a Right, and the Velvet Underground bootleg EP with I'm sticking with you on it. Fantastic records. And so they had a certain sensibility which chimed with ours. They we didn't they weren't an inspiration as a label. Those other ones were but also the distribution came first, really, and then the fact that Metal Urbane arrived one day from Paris with a tape of their newly recorded second single. We bought the first single from them direct. The beauty in those days was that you'd hear something on Peel, or you'd hear about something, you read about something in a fanzine, and then I would write a letter to the people. So I would write to Perubu, to this guy called Crocus Beamor. And ask if I could buy, you know, 150 copies of the final solution, and, and send a postal order check for the amount before we'd sold them. So that really endeared Rough Trades for all these people because we pay we pay our bills up front, and that's an important thing. So the distribution was the fundamental thing, really, and that came first because we wanted to have that system in place so that, you know, so that I mean, the generation, the Bernie Rhodes, Malcolm McLaren generation of let's sign our bands to a major, and you know try and destroy the bourgeoisie from inside we thought it was a massive mistake we, we thought it would have been much better for the clash for example who are local boys and you know Joe and Mick would come in the shop would just stay outside that system and build something which would challenge it but they, they were from a different generation and, and they, they didn't really see that in the same way and actually to be fair to them we were probably a year away from having a system and a structure which someone like Joy Division could feed into but the clash couldn't but so the inspiration for labels, Barney, really came really came from the fact that there was necessity to help these French guys that we liked. So that that was a kind of inspiration. But also we wanted to be We wanted to change the image of independence. We didn't want to be a label that didn't pay its artists, that had unfair deals, that behaved in an unethical fashion. We wanted to change the moral terrain of how a record company acted with its artists. And we, we wanted to do the right thing, but we also wanted to be successful. So, and that's really the inspiration. So looking back at, you know, Sun Records and Motown, I mean, an island records in its heyday is always a constant inspiration, really. You can't really beat that roster. Atlantic in its heyday, Warner Brothers in its heyday, you know, with, in the Joni Mitchell, Van Morrison era in the early days. All those kind of labels were all really inspirational, but often in a way of what not to do in terms of business practice, but what to do in terms of the quality of music.
0: You talked about writing letters to Crocus Beamoth. and Mick Middles, who's one of our writers, has posted online this... <laughs> He scanned and posted this letter you wrote to him. There's no date on it, but I'm guessing it's probably 76, 77. It's so sweet, actually. It, you're thanking him for sending copies of his fanzine, and you, you're putting in an order for, like, I mean, it's going to be, I mean, literally, we're talking 25p per issue or something like that. So you're not, you're not proposing to send him a vast amount of money. Mm. But at the end, it's so sweet. You write, <laughs> don't worry, we won't rip you off. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, which is so lovely. Well,
1: Donald Trump has adopted that as his slogan, you know.
3: <laughs> so, the question, Jeff, is, is that in setting up a set, becoming a distributors you must have been linking up with lots of independent record shops around the UK. Would, would that be the case? Well, that's, that's or...
1: absolutely right, Mark. I mean, that's what we call the cartel. I mean, the, right. the shops, yes. we would get phone calls from Jeff Davis at Probe in Liverpool. From Lloyd and Revolver in Bristol, from from people from Red Rhino in York, and they wanted to know where we got certain records from, and could they get them from us? Right. So, and and the Buzzcocks' first EP, Spiral Scratch, was a huge yep. catalyst for that because every independent shop worth their sort wanted that. So, in a way, that was the kind of motivator for us to identify who the shops were around the country that had owners that were interested in the same kind of music as us. So we formed an association between six or seven shops. Right. That became the cartel. And the idea of that was to try and to de-regionalize the music business. So it meant that wedding present could go in, into York, their local shop and mm-hmm. talk to Tony and, you know, get it and sort out how they could make records and get them distributed, but go through a national network. Sugar Cubes, could interface with Red Ryan and Robin Hurley in Leamington Spa being their nearest geographical point of entry. And so, you know, and so the Gang of Four hooked up with Bob Last up in, up in Edinburgh. So right. the, the geography of it was specific and important. And the shot, the key number of shops included... Pete Stanett was the only other London shop at Small Wonder in Walthamstow. Right. And, he, he, okay. and he, of
3: course, he released the first Cure single, and, and Patrick Fitzgerald and Great Singles. Sure. I I mean, one of the consequences of this is, A, that you created a network by which you could start selling your own rough trade records. Yes. But also that that you created an environment in which a whole bunch of other independent labels around England. Well, that was the most important
1: point, because I mean there was that very vital moment when Rob Gretton turned to Tony Wilson. I mean, Ian Curtis wanted to sign to RCA Mm (laughs) because his heroes were Bowie and Iggy. And they were right, both yeah, on yeah. RCA. So he's, sure. he went, and he was quite a conservative young man in his own way, as we know. He wanted to sign to RCA. But, and Tony Wilson was all for that. But Rob Gretton, good old Rob, turned to Tony one day and said, I think we should do it ourselves and get Rough Trade to distribute us. And see, that was right. an important moment in independent music because, because the network we had established, uh-huh. you, could ha- you could stay outside the mainstream major label system and also have hits. And that's what Mute did. When that's, we had massive hits, as you know, with lots and lots of records, Depeche Mode, with Yes, yes and yeah, you know, so many things. And that was the whole
3: point, really. So, in fact, in a sense, Rough Trade is more than the label, more even than distributors, but were the sort of seed for an entire kind of ecosystem of independent labels. During, those, during those
1: years, that was, I think, its most important achievement. Yeah.
0: Fantastic. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, given the roster I was talking about earlier, the extraordinary number of important acts, acts that people still talk about today, and still buy records by today, you know, everything from The Fall to The Smiths, Squiddy Politti and, and beyond that. The Smiths, you know, the biggest indie band of the 80s, you know, however much Morrissey has done to just dismirch the legacy of that, that group. I mean, what would you, what are your... I'm just curious to know what your instincts are when you, when you sign somebody, when you green light the signing of, of a bow. I mean, what is it that gets you? Is it just something very, very distinctive or particular about this ad? What, is it just a hunch? One thing to say, Barney,
1: because um, the last 30 years, Jeanette Lee has been my partner at Rough Trade.
3: Right. So absolutely. the
1: way that it works is that if Jeanette and I want to do something, we agree, then we try and do it. And that's the golden yeah. rule. So it's not just right. me. I mean, in that early era, it was me in charge of b with a lot of help from other people in the shop, but it was my final yes. decision. But since Jeanette, I started working with Jeanette, it's absolutely, you know, a cooperative decision. So everything that's happened since 34 years ago should be attributed to the both of us. What is it? Well, I mean, you know, it's the knowledge of, you know, the history of music and rock and roll, isn't it, really? I mean, it's like... It's like everything that we've listened to our whole lives and still listen to feeds into an understanding of what someone new is doing, really. And so you recognise when someone is doing something original or something exciting within a certain genre. I mean, we are, you know, we are a bit, it's not really a rest of development, but it is, we are totally engaged with what's new. new. And like Green said in one of those podcasts you sent me, we're not interested in nostalgia at all. I mean, it's very rare for me to talk about anything that's not now because I think our job is to be absolutely current and that's that's the everyday work, really. But, I mean, it's an intangible thing, isn't it? I mean, you know, you go to a museum and you see a painting. And you, we probably, we don't know as much about the history of art as some other people do, but when something strikes you in a certain way that stops you in your tracks, and it's the same with music, although probably we're more informed. I mean, when I heard Hand in Glove by the Smiths, Which Johnny Moore gave to me and I listened to over the weekend. I listened to it about 12 or 13 times, and what I liked about it was what I couldn't quite identify its origins. I mean, if you listen to Primal Scream Single at that time, you know, it was a really weak attempt to sound like the birds, which is admirable in its own way, but it doesn't really change the world. But this was something, you know, this was something different. It had power, it had musicality, it had kind of velocity, it had thrust. strange vocal with words you couldn't quite make out but something about shining out of someone's behind it was kind of intriguing <laughs> <laughs> you know I mean it's, it's my yeah. attitude in music is quite impressionistic I mean Jeanette has a different when she, when people hear things they hear things in such different ways don't they I think Jeanette can retain a melody whereas I probably can't retain a melody but it's really strange. But, but, but yet yeah, we intersect in our tastes in a way that nobody else I've ever met in my entire life ever. I mean, it's remarkable how similar our tastes are, which is quite strange in a way. Maybe. Because you yeah. know, yourselves, you go to a concert and you're, you're really enjoying it, and you turn to the person you took there, and they obviously just don't like it at all. And you just can't really understand <laughs> how they cannot <laughs> be enjoying it. <laughs> and vice versa, you know. Yeah. I and mean, yeah. I can't, I can't yeah. really yeah. stand opera, but obviously, a lot of people love it. So it's strange. It's an intang- intangible thing. It's the same thrill that you're looking for. It's that thing about not being able to buy a thrill. It's the same thing that you want. You want when you are 15 and you hear, "I can see for miles for the first time." That's what you want.
0: How is the, the the sort of, as it were, the, I don't know whether we're talking about the sort of second or third wind or iterations of, of rough trade, whether it's been a different experience. You know, I'm I'm thinking about, you know, it's interesting you talk about hand in glove because I got that blind and I just, I just had exactly the same reaction to it. I just played it and played it and played it and tried to make sense of it and <laughs> just thought it was so extraordinary. And then in a way, I mean, sort of fast forward to, I remember getting sent the first strokes ep Mm -hmm. and and just playing the hell out of that and just and and instantly thinking my god it's rough trade rough trade are back this is amazing Mm -hmm. and so strokes and then the libertines and 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 again like numerous other acts i mean the roster now is 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 you know as impressive as ever and so diverse has the since that first strokes ep came out here which is probably i mean i'm thinking at the beginning of rocks back pages we were listening to that has this time around, has it been a different experience in a better, worse or what? Well, the main difference between that and I
1: is that we're in a structure with Martin Mills, as our partner at Beggars. We've never had a business partner before that had any idea about what they were doing. So this is
0: a <laughs> new experience. <laughs> He's a good man, Martin. Yeah, Mal, he's great. He's, and, he's, and a very rich man
1: now.
0: Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Thanks to certain
1: great artists. But he's been, yes. he's been really fantastic to us. And so we, we sit in a meeting with Martin and and Rupert Skellert, Legal and Ilona, and we discuss deals and things. And we have an adult conversation and we never really had that before. So that's a huge difference, really. I mean, you know, in that period when we had Strokes and Libertines, we were with sanctuary for a while the managers of iron maiden and although we had one well, they
0: were horrible weren't they well, well we didn't really have, have we had nothing much experience.
1: to do with them but they bankrupted the company you know behind our backs <laughs> exactly so ultimately they were terrible although there was one good man there joe who did his best to save us but it was a horrible experience I only
0: ever heard bad things about Sanctuary, well, was, so I, it, yeah. it seemed like an odd, an odd uh, sort of match up somehow. Yeah, sanctuary and Rough Trade seemed yeah. a million miles apart. It was
1: our second bankruptcy, so it wasn't much fun. Oh, <laughs> well, <you> know, <laughs> yeah, yeah. We, uh, yeah. Leave it at two. Shall well, we? I think yeah. three. The Russians <laughs> have a motto that until you are bankrupt three times, you don't become a man. <laughs> <laughs> So you're, you're One working back
2: exactly.
1: third. <laughs> We're <bank>. doing <laughs> our best. Yeah. <laughs> That's brilliant.
0: I mean, maybe this is a good time to talk about, you know, in some ways, the archetypal early rough trade. Acts, which which would be the, the Squirty Mark One, I remember thinking because Mark, you talked about Acklam Hall, you talked about Prague, <laughs> but I mean, I very much had that. It was so woven into that sort of post punk era because it, it wasn't yeah. punk rock and it was more it was more intellectual, it was more collective, and, it was uh, more to do with squats frequently and frequently
3: yeah. unlistenable. You know,
0: <laughs> <laughs> well, well, so I mean, you know, squitty Mark. The audio interview this week is, is it not, is with Green.
3: Yeah, absolutely. It's, it's its actually a terrific interview. It's on the back of the release of White Bread Black Beer, which is his one of the infrequent Scritability albums in their sort of somewhat a career. And, this and clip, Return to Rough Trade. Yeah, well, of absolutely. Course. And yeah. the, the, this clip is absolutely fantastic because it is about exactly those days when they were living in that squat in King's Cross. Very political. And it's about all that sort of stuff surrounding that. So let's have a listen to this.
5: It was the big, the, the, you know, the early rough trade stuff made by one line of scriptability that did live a kind of communal squatting life in Camden and involved a broader circle of people and there was a lot of discussion, a lot of ideas. You know, I did go to the lengths of uh, writing a small paper in defence of the kind of musical moves that I wanted to make in those days that would go before the committee, as it were. So there's a theoretical defence of the pop song I can remember writing, which is, you know, kind of laughable now, but good fun at the time. Good exercise, you know.
3: (laughs) In my my job as sort of main proofreader of kind of 60s, 70s, 80s stuff, is my idea of hell is having to proofread an Ian Penman interview with Green because I would not be able to understand a word they're saying. You need need a sort of degree in modern French Philosophy, so sort of, you know, have, have a clue. And I bought Skank Block Bologna when it, when it came out. But for me, the revelation was Sweet as Girl because it was just suddenly this discovery, of the song and and beauty again, which was just marvellous. But
0: Jeff, when did you first encounter Green? By the way, there's a lovely bit in the interview where he talks about. I think he may, he says. He uses the phrase, the rough trade, young communist years. <laughs> <laughs> what was your first encounter with Green and scritty Jeff? My memory is not very good, but I think it must have been
1: when Green and Niall and Tom came into the shop to play Block Bologna. And as okay. we were doing those days, when people come into the shop, with the record they'd made that they wanted us to distribute, we'd, we'd play it over the shop sound system, which was massive, giant reggae speakers. And we, we played it, I think, and instantly loved it. I think there was one person in distribution, a guy called Andy Dade, I think, who was like a warehouse manager who might have been a member of the Young Commons League. And he, <laughs> he was a bit of a dissenter, and he thought it was too long. That was his criticism. <laughs> <laughs> that was his only yeah, those were his and notes. Yeah. And so as a result of that, I I think it was I, mean, I don't think we made a huge pitch for it to be a Rough Trade single. We sort of accepted it to being a King's Cross collaboration with Rough Trade, which I kind of regretted because I loved it. But maybe Scritchy were intent on it coming out on their own label. But I wonder they might have been happy if we'd have said we wanted to release it ourselves. But I remember that. And then there was one other occasion where Andy Dade made an objection to a record that I wanted to do. And that was when I wanted to release What Becomes the Broken Hearted, that collaboration between Colin Blundstone and Dade Stewart, which I thought was fantastic. I love Colin Blundstone. Right. But he, yes. he didn't like that either. So that kind of got vetoed. <laughs> and, so that, and when that happened, I thought to myself, I'm never gonna listen to anybody ever again. <laughs> that was my education in communal ANR, which I think
0: is it, it, a disaster. <laughs> it began and ended. Uh, thank you, thank that's you, Andy. Very fun. <laughs> As a sort of personality, as a sort of tortured intellectual, how did how did Green? Sorry, I don't mean you as a tortured intellectual. Uh, you, you may be both of those, but probably not together. But in a sense, Green is a bit of a tortured intellectual. I wondered whether he he struck you in in that way. Not really. We had a lot of fun, really. I mean, I didn't actually spend okay. any much. I didn't go
1: to Carroll Street more than about once, so I wasn't really in the inner circle of you know endless debate and kind of Green's fiefdom of, you know, intellectual Mm. advocates. I mean, I I respected him as being an intelligent, interesting young man. I think I was at that gig that Mark was referring to in Akron Hall, where Squish (laughs) played their first ever gig. They ran out of songs, and they played Baffling Smoke Signals, which was their cover of a Lee Perry tune, twice as an encore. It was really fantastic. (laughs) (laughs) No, I mean, I always got on really well with Green. I mean, there was a period... Where he started to get very difficult when he became really famous, which fame does that to most people, unfortunately. And but that is that but then he came of out of, he came out of it
0: or... on the on the right side again. Okay, definitely. are you saying that was post-rough yeah, post trade? Yeah, post-rough trade. I, I didn't really like see it, him yes, much. Yes.
1: Once Bob last spirited him away, I mean, it was became very obvious that what well, there was a bit of controversy at Rough Trade about how much money had been spent on the sweetest girl which really annoyed me because it wasn't that much money at all. It was recorded with Adam and in a little studio in yeah. Soho, and it wasn't really that expensive. But certain people at Rough Trade who were out to get me started a rumour that had cost a fortune that I was bankrupting the company, which was a lot of nonsense. And, and it, it made me realise that for Green to realise his ambitions, we, he really wasn't going to be able to do it on Rough Trade. So he kind of left without blessing in a way.
0: I mean, I agree with my Sweetest Girl was such a revelation. <laughs> and I was reminded again, preparing for this, that it was on that C81 cassette. It might even have been the, f- was it the first track on the C81 cassette? It was, C81 it was that version cassette. of it. It's a really good one. Yeah. yeah. It was, yeah. Yes. It's, of course, it's a different yeah, version, right. but it was a revelation because I interview. I went to Carroll Street and I did an enemy cover story which i just revisited and read yesterday and you know we were sitting there and he was talking about Jacques derrida and other stuff and <laughs> there was a track called Jacques derrida on songs to remember of mm. course wasn't there and i mean he was he was sort of really really smart intelligent guy and and he he could talk about all this stuff but sweetest girl showed that actually he didn't want to kind of stay in that in that squatting, you know, post-structuralist ghetto. And in some ways, Faithless, I found even... even, I mean, it wasn't the hit that Sweetest Girl was, but it was an even more remarkable record to me. I mean,
3: Faithless had a direct consequence of me forming the band I did with Heather Small, who went on to success with M People, is that we actually wrote a song which is basically a Faithless rewrite and sort of rediscovered soul music in the process. It was right. it, it was kind of that, that thing. I loved that album. I think the songs to remember was just, just, just... Oh, but tremendous. what was your
1: band called, Mark?
3: We were called Hot House. You won't remember us. We were on to our RCA, funnily enough, right. and we sold no <laughs> records whatsoever. <laughs> right. But Heather went on to do very well yeah, with yeah. 10 people.
0: I remember another time I interviewed Green at the end of the 90s. He talked about this moment where he, he said I'd go into the Rough Trade shop and all the bands had their like top tens pinned to the bulletin board and they were all it was all like scratchy sort of indie 45 stuff and he said I went home and listened to Off the Wall, Don't Stop Till You Get Enough and it just floored me and I thought no more pinning up top 10 indie singles in the Rough Trade shop and he and and that was the moment where he sort of headed off in his mine to America and black American music. And, and, which, and, and which take... within a couple of years, he's working with Arif Mardin and Marcus Miller.
3: Well, which takes us very nicely to the next clip because it's, it's about precisely, precisely that, that journey to America.
5: Then there was the whole breakup of that, and I went to America to make um, a much more to try and make a sophisticated pop music, an R&B-influenced... You know, I hadn't grown up with black music. I grew up with white music, white pop music. I came to R&B, black American music, very late in life and found it revelatory and, you know, tied in with my being disenchanted with the beginnings of independent music in this country. And when that, you know, when, when indie began and looked like settling down to being a genre all of its own with its attendant... You know, shops, Stop dress sense, yeah. And I thought that was that was awful. So um, I ended up in New York, making music that was a, an attempt to, to fuse a kind of British pop sensibility in whatever that is, in inverted <laughs> commas. You know, with American pop, principally R and B influences, and with a great deal of emphasis on um, production, syncopation. You know, polished musicianship.
3: You're very, very I'm sort probably less fond of that period, Scottish Police, than you are. You're, you really love some of that, well, Cupid and Psyche.
0: I, I do, I did really like most of Cupid and Psyche. I'd be interested to know what you thought, Jeff, when you first heard that album. I,
1: I love it, really. I think it's wonderful. Yeah. I mean,
0: I think Green is remarkable in that in most
1: musicians' catalogues, there's usually some really, really bad records. And I think in Green's catalogue, there are none.
3: Yeah? <laughs> but you haven't said that, then you come out once every 10 years more. Well, that's fair so... enough. I mean, I'd
1: rather, I'd rather that than like five, yes. years, five unlistenable Neil Young records. <laughs> 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 he's they, wasted millions and millions of Warner Brothers money that they could have been given there to someone interesting. That really annoys me. <laughs>
0: yeah, that's well, a very that's, good point. <laughs> that's a very good point, you know. I mean, I do think he's a fascinating man. He certainly... You know, this audio interview from 2006, as you say, Mark, by Adam Sweeting proves what an interesting yeah. and articulate, eloquent fellow um, he is. He's,
3: he's interesting and articulate, but he's sort of shed some of the need to impress that he had in his younger days and in terms of ramming this notion of, you know, French philosophy down the interviewer's throat sort of stuff. He, he's quite funny about that. You know, He's, he's in, the, in this interview, he's he, he's quite good about sort of, you know, he's probably a bit more self-aware in, a, in a, these days. But it's true. <laughs> I, I, listened, I listened to the album yesterday, a White Bread, Black Beer, which had sort of passed me by. Oddly, it reminded me strong, quite strongly of the sort of stuff that Sean O'Hagan, you know, from Micro Disney, who's another... Rough Trade Band. Sean O'Higgins has been doing recently. There's some of that sort of curious songs as snippets. and you know He doesn't feel, if it's only a minute and a half long, it's a minute and a half long. Mm. And without things like obvious verses and choruses, they sort of meander in a really kind of very interesting way. Mm. It's, it's just good to hear.
0: Moments on it, funny enough, reminded me of another act you signed. I think one of the, the giants of music of the last 10, 15 years, Sufjan Stevens. There's a couple of moments on White Bread Black Beer, which are, which are quite Sufjan. Um, <laughs> oh, that's interesting. I know Green really respects Sufjan, yeah. Yeah, um, makes mm, sense, makes mm. sense. For what it's worth, I mean, Carrie and Lowell, I think, is one of the sort of five greatest records made in the last, you know, I'd say I, 15 years. I, I agree years. with you. I mean, I think so. Do I Yeah,
1: you? I do. I think, so. I think for me, it's Sufjan and, and Anthony and the Johnsons, I know New I think, I think those are I mean, two of the giants of our, of our lifetimes, really.
0: I really agree. I mean, you know, so, so oh, I've lost my train of thought because I'm just thinking, my God, just two more extraordinary acts that, you, that you've <laughs> done. Where does he do that? I end? think, boom, I think boom, boom Boom Back on White
3: Bread, Black Beer is as good as anything <laughs> Green has it's ever recorded. It's fantastic. Yeah. And one thing comes up in the interviews one thing that he's done is he's had these periodic sort of meltdowns. I don't know anything about his. Absolute sure. details of his mental health, but he's backed away from everything. Often gone back to Wales, where he comes from, and he talks about this period after he had done the, that row of that run of albums in in the eighties, going back to Wales, and he'd listened to nothing but hip hop. Yeah. He said it's the only music he listened to for about five five years or so. Mm. Yeah, and that song, that particular song, is absolutely about that. Yeah,
0: yeah. And, of course, you know, he'd worked with, like, Roger Troutman as well as, of course, Miles Davis. Which he, talk, then, which he talks about in the interview just, again. Which he does talk about, you know, Imagine yeah. going and
1: around did... to Miles Davis's
0: house for a chat, honestly. <laughs> it was, it was, it was, yeah, exactly. Well, it was because Miles was living in the Essex House Hotel at the time on Central Park South, mm. and I think he was there for at least a couple of years, so so Green would pop round mm. this, <laughs> this suite mm. that Miles had. And well, I wanted to ask you... Where, how did Green slash gritty? How did how did Green come back to Rough Trade? I
1: thought you might ask me that. What happened was I listened when Anami and Bonamy came out, which I absolutely loved, especially Brush with Oil. I think that's an absolutely oh, that's beautiful, an absolutely isn't beautiful it? track, yeah. and no one, I really haven't heard anything else quite like that. Brushed with oil, dusted
2: with powder.
1: And when I heard that record and when I sort of was thinking about the context of how it came out, when it came out at the time, it just struck me that nobody, it wasn't really going to do very well, this record, because it was kind of out of kilter with everything. And I just thought that was a terrible waste. So I I just rang Green up again after, maybe it was after 20 years or something, and said, what's going on? You know, do you need any help? Because I felt that it was going to hit, it was going
0: to run aground, this project, and it didn't deserve to, really. So that, that, indeed, that was my motivation. motivation yeah. yeah, and and white bread black beer was highly acclaimed. Got got really great reviews, and it's only taken another fourteen years for him. Well, to I know. I mean, I mean, you know, I mean, I'm,
1: you know, I'm meant to be Green's manager, and I suppose like, ah, I am. I am his manager. But... <laughs> someone, has, someone thinks I am anyway. I mean, you know, that is part of my job, is to try to get this next record out of him. I mean, there's a lot of reasons why it's taken so long. I mean, I won't really go into them, but there has to be a new album next year from Scruti. There just has to be. I mean, the music is there on his computer. He's just got this non-finishing disease. He gets up every morning and he wants to start a new track. I mean, he really does do that. And it is a kind of disease. I mean, it's a kind of admirable disease, but you know if we want to hear what he's been doing he has to finish i mean what he thinks of as unfinished would probably be 99 percent of other people's
3: finished work it's very interesting that process i mean arthur russell the great arthur russell's another one apparently just a non-finisher could never complete a track there's always something else to be done or something else to do together and it's it's it doesn't happen often, but it's interesting when it happens because it. I does think Arthur, I
1: mean Arthur, another rough trade artist. I'm proud to claim. Yeah, but exactly. I think part of Arthur's reasoning for why he didn't let things go was because he was dying of AIDS.
3: Well, that's true. And I
1: think I think it was sort of a race against time for him just to keep yes, recording. Sure, sure. Yeah, yeah, so yeah. slightly different.
0: Yeah. So in the meantime, with Green, we have we have this Tangled Man EP. Do we call just it just a single? Two tracks. Just a single. Two tracks coming out tomorrow, which are covers of songs by, or performed, or originally recorded by the great Anne Briggs. And this reminds us or or perhaps tells us something we didn't know about Green, which is, you know, he had this, long before Scritti Politti, he was really into folk music, wasn't he? And we actually, the Rotspot Pages briefly had an album club thing going. It was a monthly event at the Idler Bookshop, also in the Notting Hill area. And we had this amazing evening. The best of the ones we did was Mark Allen basically co-hosting this evening with Robin Hitchcock and Green, talking about and playing songs from the incredible string bands hangman's beautiful daughter album and we've got the recording of that evening on rocks back pages it's it's a joy and a delight and they were so fascinating and so here's green you know channeling that aspect of himself again and and i think you sent us this morning jeff the press release for that so it was a a pretty off-the-cuff thing and and you, you decided to release these, these versions? Yeah, I mean, it was a
1: sort of busman's holiday that Green was asked to do this, this version by someone not related to Rough Traders for a compilation album. And I suppose because it wasn't, you know, a squishy release and whatever, that, with all the kind of pressure that mm. entails, he just did it, literally. And so hearing something that Green has just done is a joy, really. And when we heard it, Jeanette and I, we just thought we really want this to be released. Okay, as simple as that, really.
0: And he was right. happy to well, do it. We haven't heard it yet. Oh, you have not it yet. heard it? Yeah, so I'm oh. looking forward to No, haven't heard it yet. So I look forward yeah. to Presumably, can hear it tomorrow. Right. Ooh. Yes. <laughs>
1: He's I want to That's <laughs>
0: good. Because yes, I thought I might actually
1: have a single here I could hold up. Yeah, don't worry. <laughs> would, if I could find it, that would be perfect, wouldn't it? Yeah, yeah. don't okay. worry.
0: We could, we're it will it be on Spotify yes, tomorrow? It will, yeah great fantastic if the system works um, or, or 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 in fact by the time people are listening to this yes, it's on Spotify. absolutely
1: yeah
0: tangled man,
2: man you'll be
0: mine. shall we bow out with just this this we I mean, should we say that last clip Mark yeah, let's for, say for going so, out let, let's say, say okay. the last clip. Don't which was, which, which i mean,
3: though, to sorry. briefly describe it is. He he talks about how he is romant he's romantic and he's sentimental, but he's not nostalgic, which I think's very interesting. I kind of I really get what he means by that. That you can be capable of enormous sentimentality, but it doesn't mean you're always wanting to return to some idea of the past. So it's great stuff. The other stuff he talks about in this, he, well, he talks a lot about his memory and about how he has a very, very fractured memory. He has a bad memory. and that, that... Well, he
0: recommends having a bad memory, doesn't he? He kind of does, He sort yeah. of swears by it, yeah.
3: He's <laughs> very interesting about Bernie Rhodes and Malcolm McLaren. There's a kind of quite a long aside about those two, which is good. Anyway, it's a terrific interview. He's very engaging. He's, he's very interesting. Sweeting asks some good questions and st- stays out of the way, which is always good in an interview. Thoroughly enjoyed it. And so I I really recommend it for our subscribers to give it a listen.
0: Well, terrific. Well, I mean, you know, Jeff, good luck getting that next squitty album (laughs)
2: out of
0: (laughs) Mr. Gartside. side. Just briefly to mention the other three pieces on the homepage this week, with three pieces by the American writer Pat Blaschel, who has just published – a book of his photographs of the texas punk rock scene and that's everything from the big boys to the butthole surfers pat was a great writer on like details spin rolling stone etc but he also took all these amazing photos in austin and other Places in Texas, and he's just published this great book called Texas is the Reason. So, we've just picked three pieces. One is an interview with the Beastie Boys in 1994 when they briefly returned to America. The second is his account of the dark side of America's rave scene from 1999. And then we've just also chosen an excerpt from this book, Texas is the Reason. I think Pat's pretty cool, so it's nice to feature him on the homepage as indeed it's nice to feature a cover of john savage's london's outrage <laughs> fanzine which which was one of those you sold in the shop i think yeah, yeah. and in fact the other piece about rough traders there's two other pieces and one of them is john savage Writing about Rough Trade after 25 years, it's a really nice piece that that John wrote, I think, for a Rough Trade compilation. It's called The Agora of the Wayward. Mm. Classic savage speak, really. <laughs> so... Jeff, thanks for, for being with us thus far. If you would like to stick around, we are now going to talk about some of the highlights going into the library this week and just sort of jump in if the mood takes you. So Mark will start off with, with the things that he's enjoyed most reading and uploading.
3: Yeah, well, the first one is fabulous because of who it is. Um, I'd managed to track down the nearest relatives to the great Lillian and Roxham, who is a, such a pioneering music journalist. Fantastic. First of all is the Sydney Morning Herald. She's Australian but of Middle European descent. She went to New York as Sydney Morning Herald's New York correspondent and fell in love with the city and with the music. And then she started writing for the New York Daily News, or in fact, the New York Sunday News. It was actually a sort of separate paper in those days. And then died, tragically, of a, an asthma-induced heart attack in 1973. So I tracked down her, her Her niece is a senior Australian politician of some repute, interestingly enough. And, it's, and um, her mother, Lillian's sister-in-law, gave us her blessing. So the first piece I've got for her is she goes to San Francisco in March '67. Oh, uh, sounds
0: familiar, Jack. <laughs>
3: <laughs> uh, uh, to, to report on the hippies, you know, for the Sydney Morning <laughs> Herald. Bit of it goes like this. This town, said a girl in a sweat and red tights, is one great big glorious freaked out love happening. The natives have given this sort of extravagant talk, but as it turns out, they happen to be right. Someone looking on San Francisco from a more conservative place, say New York, Los Angeles or Sydney, is in for some surprises. Soberly dressed men wearing beads... Earnest schoolgirls lecturing on sex, long-haired hippies running for municipal office, rock and roll groups playing Amazing Grace at church services, and LSD is a fact of life. It's it's a good, big introduction to the Australian public about what this hippie thing is all about.
0: Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, just so fantastic. I, I wanted... To, to, to get Lillian Rocks oh. and stuff on Rocksback pages, probably ever since we started. And it just didn't seem any way of making that happening with with sort of, you know, with, with, like, permission. Well,
3: absolutely. The great sadness is that she was seeing and loving stuff but not writing about it for the Sydney Morning Herald. I mean, she was right there in the factory, Warhol's factory and so on and so forth. But I've got one piece which is a kind of about the factory. But... The Sydney Morning Herald didn't really encourage her to write about the more out there stuff. She wrote a lot of stuff about film stars and about women's fashion and so on and so forth. She's a much broader journalist than just a music journalist. When she started writing for the New York Daily News, Sunday News, she starts writing actually much more instantly about much more interesting stuff. But it's a really short period. It's 71 to mid
0: 73. It isn't very long. Uh, but she did interview everybody. Jeff, did you ever own her rock encyclopedia? Yes, definitely. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I used to own all those books. Which, yeah. Which <laughs> is such an, I mean, you know, I haven't, I actually confess, I don't have, I've lost my copy. Mm. So I don't know how well it stands up, but it was an incredibly important. Book. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it was the, the first I mean, it was absolutely the first like rock or pop in Yeah. A on, yeah. <clears throat> but it was a touchstone, yeah, yeah. wasn't yeah. it? <laughs> really important. She, also, great... she
3: she writes like a dream. She's a really, really good stylish writer, which you know, from our standpoint, given our job, it's 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 brilliant. Next piece is fascinating, it's an uncredited interview from a Seattle underground paper called Helix, 1969, with Chris Hillman and Graham Parsons of the Flying Burrito Brothers. And it's an underground magazine. It's a typical kind of completely unfiltered, basically a transcript of the interview. There's no t- attempt to sort of like, you know, editorialize. Contextualize. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, yeah. Chris Hillman's very interesting. He's asked about Los Angeles. He says, there's a lot of violence going on all over. All the nice scenes have been squashed out and dirt has come over it. Now, this is the summer of the, the Sharon Tate murders. You know, it, he's talking about a vibe in Los Angeles which proved hideously to be true after this interview. Came out, Grand says, I really got off living over in England with Keith and Mick of the Stones, digging things that are profound about where music's at and where it's going. (laughs) And then Hillman is ruthless about both of their ex-employer, Roger McGuinn. He says, it's very difficult to work with McGuinn, you know, on anything. He's the type of guy that it's just a job. He goes up on stage and becomes a musician. Off stage, he's not. He doesn't buy records, doesn't listen to the radio. He doesn't really keep up with what's happening in music which I think's is uh, pretty good stuff,
0: really. Um, a, a, it's, you know, there aren't that many interviews with uh, Graham, Graham. Well, and Graham, yeah. you know, there aren't that many interviews that Graham did. Um, so that's that's always great to have. Yeah, I found, I, I, was, found, I
3: found it in Los Angeles Free Press, and it said the bottom reprinted from Helix, so I dug up Helix. Okay. And it's, it's, it's a classic, uh, you know, single-city underground paper.
0: But also, also, always amuses me the idea of you know, like someone like Chris Hillman uh, dissing Roger McGuinn, and then, and then, um, not, not too uh, much later, getting back in the birds with Roger McGuinn. I always sort of think that's well, <laughs> 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 awkward, right? I mean, look, it, it, it happens all, all the time, anyway, in terms of people tweeting things about him and then but, but. It, in those days, you know, it wasn't that common for someone to like slag someone off and then, oh, hang on a minute, we're reforming the birds. Sorry, Roger. Well, you know, you, were, it's like were you it's like in like any way,
1: Crosby, Stills,
0: fan Jeff,
3: Oh, yeah, I love you
1: were no, I loved them, and those yeah. first two Graham albums are amazing. Yeah, oh, yes, yeah, amazing. Yes. Yeah, 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 absolutely.
3: Actually, I personally I prefer the Graham albums to the Brutus. I mean, some fabulous songs on the Brutus stuff, but those Graham those better
0: records overall. They're better overall, overall, mm-hmm. They're better yeah. overall.
1: Yeah, the, yeah. the musicianship is amazing.
0: Yes, well, the, it's Elvis's band, Burton really, Burton is everybody, everybody? Yeah. yeah. I'm just going to borrow Elvis Presley's band. <laughs> you know, uh, yeah, yeah. Um, probably but, but, better than Chris Erthridge. Didn't, on didn't bass. he want
1: Merle Haggard to produce him as well? He did originally, originally yeah. Yeah. but,
0: but Merle was slightly appalled when when, when, when um, Graham <laughs> came to stay with him in.
3: <laughs> OK, uh, next piece is, uh, again, an uncredited from an underground magazine. This is a live review of The Stones at the Olympus Stadium D- Detroit in December. Well, the gig would have been November probably 69. Um, and it's a classic bit of underground press writing because, you know, whereas normally it'd be a review of the show and they'd describe how the band was and all that, this is, kind of brings in all the baggage of particularly... Detroit, well, it's the Ann Arbor Argus. Ann Arbor, which is the University of Michigan's hometown, hotbed of it was John Sinclair, the White Panther Party, all of that. So it's, yeah,
0: Stooges came, yeah, around, and, yeah. and the MC Five,
3: yeah. of course, you know. And this is just brilliant. He says this is towards the end of the review. He says, "And our current level of struggle—clapping hands, cutting up, busting loose, fucking, blowing weed, and breaking windows—is a far cry from seizing state power. The Vietnam War drags on. We aren't half as miserable as most of the world." And a lot of the revolution so far is just a hip ego trip. What do groupies, pimps, PR men and ticket takers have to do with the revolution? Mick Jagger is still our wet dream, our illusion of release. A half-assed male chauvinist prick, not a stone communist revolutionary. I just loved it, you know. That's (laughs) fabulous.
0: That is brilliant. Brilliant. I love that. Brilliant.
3: A live review, yeah. (laughs) 71 enemy, Roger St-Pierre talks to Isaac Hayes and kind of reviews Shaft. Isaac says, Shaft looks at things from the black point of view. It's got a black hero and tells it like it really is. However, St Pierre's view of the movie is, on the screen, the proclaimed black James Bond may come out on top with gun-smoking, fist-flailing and seduced dolly birds groaning contentedly, but for my money, John Shaft falls flat in his face without wishing to be harsh. Shaft really is the worst movie I've seen since the heyday of Pinewood and those terrible British non-thrilling thrillers. <laughs>
0: <laughs> John Shaft. Yeah, John Shaft. Really, how does it go? I thing? still like Shaff. the theme. I've never John seen the
4: film, Shaff. but I think, I think the theme it,
3: is... It's, it's a, a pretty, pretty terrible film, haste.
0: but I mean, you know... But theme from Shaft is good. It is, it is. It's pretty great, great isn't, isn't it? <laughs>
3: I'm very pleased about this next piece. It's, again, a new writer we've got on board who I've been putting stuff in and talking about for the last three or four weeks, Philip Elwood from the San Francisco Examiner. And this is a live review of Sylvester at the Old Waldorf from mm. July 77. You know, Elwood's really interesting. He's, he's really basically a jazz fan, but by extension reviews all black music and rock and roll as well. And he, he's his relationship with, like, funk and so on is... Mm, bit, bit, bit up and down. He, he doesn't love the funkification of black music, but he's, he's great here. He says, and always, I kept hoping that he would concentrate more on his music, less on staging, although his dancing and movements in general have always been superb. And gradually music has replaced glitter as Sylvester's performing forte. He still plays in sequins and satins shimmering in the spotlight. He still wiggles around the stage, carrying on most hilariously with his rotund singing colleagues, Martha Wash and Azora Rhodes.
0: The future weather girl. (laughs) Yes, but his
3: driving intensity as lead vocalist now overshadows his gaiety, and his band, A Cooking Affair, propels most of the tunes along with a powerful kick. I just love that. But yeah, two tons of fun. We love Sylvester. It's terrific, and it's also really nice to get a live review of Sylvester in his hometown. Absolutely. I'll skip over Chris Heath's review of The Pogues I was going to talk about. Uh, the last one I'll talk about, really, is way go, leaping forward to 1999. Randy Newman, interviewed for Rolling Stone by Rob Tannenbaum. Randy Newman always gives great interviews. Yes, he does. He says, if, it, if I'd written just the way you are, it would have said at the end, you stupid cunt. I'd have blown it with some idiocy. If someone called me to write a song for Shania Twain, I'd do it. And it wouldn't say, shit, piss, fuck, damn in it. And then the last bit is he says, I yell at people on the road and get out of my car ready to fight. And my wife will say quietly, it was your fault. After I posted that, Rob posted on our Facebook page. He saw he, I posted that quote up, that last one. And he, he said... He's, he liked that. Very, very
0: funny. I, mean, I remember interviewing Randy once and he said sort of the same thing to me. like, I'd ruin it all. He was like, how, he can't really understand how people like Sting and Paul Simon and Elton John have these hits. And then he says, it's probably because if I wrote a love song to try and get a top 40 hit, I would I would say, I love you, U-C-U-N-T <laughs> in it and, it, and just <laughs> he, he ruin did, he, any he, chance. He recorded
4: a, a sort of coronavirus-related little video of him playing a song that he'd written it was a love song but stay away from me because of covid it was very sweet actually <laughs> i can't remember what the hook was I've but it was very very one. funny <laughs> i would highly recommend going and digging it out because it's on youtube somewhere it's very funny and it's i think it does capture exactly that it's a love song but you know don't come near me we could
0: have you could have to nice. put a clip of it on this on this podcast yeah <laughs> That's great. Jeff, are you a Randy oh, Neiman? Oh, yeah, of course. Of course, well? must yeah, we, we must yeah, assume. We must assume, yes. I, I'm not sure I could respect someone who didn't <laughs> like Randy <laughs> Neiman, really. I still think he's great. I mean, he's still, you know, all this time later. But he's still great. Um, he's still making great records. Um, yeah. he still yeah. writes incredible. I mean, that song about Putin yeah. was absolutely yeah, hilarious. Absolutely. And he was going to be, I think he was going to be playing, like, was it the Festival Hall this year? And obviously, those. Dates have been either cancelled. My only gripe with Randy is that once I I once saw him play three nights in a row
1: in in Utrecht when I was staying there, and he was absolutely brilliant. But his stage pattern was the same every single night, and that really disappointed me.
0: But I'm, I'm shocked I by that. Would... I'm
1: shocked by that. But I guess it's a showbiz tradition. It's fair enough.
0: <laughs> what, it's like <laughs> the same with any great stand-up yeah. comedian, isn't it? I mean, you see them once, and yeah. you just are blown away. So naive. If I you thought, see them again a week later. Like, so, so naive.
1: It's I
4: thought it was all you know. I've
1: laboured and.
4: I found the lyrics. I found the lyrics for that for that song you wrote. Stay away from me, baby. Keep your distance,
0: please. <laughs> Stay away from me. Words of love in times like these. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, he's just one of the—he's just one of the absolutely greatest and funniest yeah. human beings. He's so funny! I love Randy Newman.
3: Stay away from me. Never yeah, keep your distance, please. Stay away from me. Words of love in times like these. I, and of course, that good old boys as an album is particularly resonant at this moment in time, in terms mm, of
0: absolutely. history yeah. and politics. Indeed, indeed. Be a, be a brave man to drive around in a an open top car playing rednecks high volume, in this day yeah. and age.
1: <laughs> that could be his best.
0: <laughs> it's problematic. Could be his best record. That
3: one. I, 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 I <gasps> so. absolutely. Think, I think that, yeah. that. I think we would agree yeah, with that you. That album Jeff. is. Yeah. yeah. And actually, going take and, and the, the song "Rednecks." Yeah. Like, Strangely, is that. If you actually listen to the words, it's just it's brilliant, it's lacerating about all kinds of things. But if you just hear the word rednecks and the chorus, a lot of people And the N word uh, and and, the N word And a lot of people just take against it. I mean Heather, our old singer, we had to explain what he was mm. saying. Mm. She absolutely hated it first, mm. you know, yeah. as a black woman, you know.
0: Well, I'm I'm sure he will get grief for it and it's very difficult to do sa- satire as savage as that, yeah. actually, in, in this day and age, I think.
4: Well know. it is the problem with satire, right? Like, you know, at some point, how satirical can you get without it being too real to be
3: sure. I I of... I mean the, the kernel thing yeah. about rednecks is that it's all very well the north being Condemning the South for its racism and it's basically saying well, you know it's it, it's saying just that you sort out your own house before you start well,
0: sure. And, and we've all had to do that, condemning what's happened in America. Yeah. There's been we've all had to wake up to the fact that it really ain't no better here. It, well, it, indeed, it, maybe in some regards, but yeah, yeah, anyway. Absolutely. Hey, what have you got? We'll talk about Bar- all this, yeah. I'm going to just pass over to Jasper here, just in the interests of time. And <laughs> um, we've got we've got a very we've got a very busy man on our podcast today, and I, I feel we should probably let him go, <laughs> let him out of the virtual cupboard. So, Jasper, do you want to just talk about a couple of things that you added? We are
4: slightly out of time, I'll just mention a couple of things very briefly. I added a review of Corinne Bailey Ray's debut album, Corinne Bailey Ray, which is a nice sort of soul singer-songwriter thing. Pete Perfidus reviews it in The Times, I believe. It's funny partly because it's another review because a few weeks ago i added one in which beverly knight got slagged off pete buffini's managed to slag off beverly knight in this review of current bailey ray as well got, got <laughs> it in. <for laughs> <Beverly Knight. laughs> the review captures the, the various aspects of the album it's got you know it's not the deepest album but he points out that she has a lovely voice which she does and i think she's written a couple of really pretty little songs so i wanted to add that and then the other thing i wanted to mention was a pip Williams interview with Silvanesso. And when I proposed to add this, Barney said, I've no, no idea who Silvanesso is, but they've got a really great name. And I, me- I thought I'd mention it because actually in the interview, Silvanesso answered your question with the quote, We're a goddamn electronic band. So (laughs) that's in response to... Pip asks whether they have any plans to do sort of stripped-down versions or do stuff with live horn sections, as they have done in live sessions. And the answer is, people always want us to do an acoustic session, which is just crap. We're a goddamn electronic band. People will be like, could you just strip it down, just put a guitar in there? No, dude, those aren't our instruments. So I thought that was quite
0: fun. Good purism there.
2: I was gonna die
0: that's it that's, that's I'll, it. I'll leave it that's there. it okay. i'll leave it there okay fantastic well you know as of there are over 35 plus pieces that we're kind of what we're currently adding in in, in lockdown mode is, is is i think it's sort a minimum of 35 per week lots of good stuff in there so check it out and obviously you can read the free stuff that we've talked about it remains for us to thank you jeff so much for joining us today and sharing you say you don't like going back we forced you to go back in time <laughs> can, and, can. Uh, maybe not to be nostalgic <laughs> but at least perhaps reflective so thank you for doing that i hope it hasn't been been too it's been very, well, thank you to very be, much
1: man.
0: relive your back pages <laughs> but we're all indebted to you jeff i mean so much incredible music that um, i've got i've got, got to know, say, I,
3: If I have a favourite Rough Trade album, it's James Blood Ulmer. Are you glad to be in America? (laughs) That album absolutely knocked me out of my. That's very
1: nice to hear. Thank you, Mark.
3: And I went to see him at Notre Dame Hall when he him supported by This
0: Heat, promoting that record.
3: It's just fantastic. But yeah, I love that
0: record. Thank you. And he was also on that, that C81 cassette, which yes. was such a sort of defining artifact. It was very rough trade. Yeah. It was very indie. It was all That just was fantastic. A, a lot of collection. our
3: writers who I'm friendly with on Facebook and off Facebook, like David Stubbs and all that, they sort of regard 79 to 81 as one of the great periods in popular music history in terms of the sort of things which are coming out. I mean, you got. You got Laurie Anderson having hit records. You know, you had Grace Jones' private lives and all that's the start of that marvelous, sustained run of stuff. Uh, and all the stuff, you know, coming out of Rough Trade and so on and so forth. It was a really good, good time, 79 to 81.
0: I think you're right. And without Rough Trade, it just wouldn't have been the same no, thing at all. Absolutely so, right. so- Jeff, thanks again so much. And we'll see you around.
3: (laughs) We're going to go out with this clip from Green again. And this is what I was talking about earlier. This is him sort of comparing romance versus nostalgia.
0: Yeah, fantastic. So so goodbye. And we will see you in a fortnight. With or without a guest. We're aiming to get a guest, but we'll be back in a fortnight.
3: All right. See you. Bye. Thanks 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 for for joining us.
0: Bye-bye. Bye. Bye.
5: Oh, I think I'm very, um, in the proper definition of it, I'm pretty, you know, I'm sentimental and romantic. I think everything I do has sentiment and romance in it, but I certainly no, have no time for nostalgia or... I don't want, you know, I don't, <laughs> there seems to me no point in thinking about yesterday, never mind a week ago. And with sufficient amounts of Guinness, of course, this is quite easily achieved, <laughs> And so many, many years of the intake of various things helps the act of forgetfulness very well.
4: That was Green Gartside in conversation with Adam Sweeting in 2006, concluding this week's Rocks Back Pages podcast. Many thanks to special guest Jeff Travis, visit the Rough Trade website at roughtrade.com. The hosts were Barney Hoskins and Mark Pringle, and it was co-hosted and produced by Jasper, Murison and Bowie. The Rocks Back Pages podcast is part of the Pantheon Podcast Network. You can find thousands of articles, as well as hundreds of full-length audio interviews at rocksbackpages.com.
0: That was the year before you make me feel righty meal. I, 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 I can't speak. <laughs> righty meal. Righty Who meal. wants <laughs> a righty <laughs>
2: meal? <laughs> yeah!